This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. One of the strengths that I've uh, always called on in terms of buying real estate is when people use one factor as the key to what the main thing is you should be buying. I try to look at things 15 different ways. I think it's like that in terms of analyzing the market as well. So we're looking at a time where, yes, there are concerns about interest rate, but there are so many other factors affecting the housing market. Welcome to the new and improved 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll look at how interest rates impact the real estate market. We'll hear about maca for your mojo. Then we'll learn about the natural treatment of menopause. And lastly, we'll answer your top questions about sleep. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to The Tonic. How are you? I'm good. So lately in the news, there's been a lot of talk about limits to foreign purchasers and stress tests impacting our our real estate market. But at the end of the day, I think that real estate uh, is mostly driven by interest rates. And after many years of historically low interest rates, the central bank over the last year or so has gently started to raise those rates. And I'm not sure where it's going this year. I think there's probably been a change of plans. But how has the interest rates impacted the real estate market and in particular the rental market that you've seen? First of all, we should argue over where we think interest rates are going. Okay. There was a lot of talk a year ago that the economy was getting overheated and there were going to be a number of interest rate raises over the year. And the United States was pushing us to have to follow step. And all of a sudden, things have changed. It's hard to say. Do you want my hot take? Sure. Okay. So here's what I think. I think the Canadian government and the central bank were greatly worried about inflation and perhaps stagflation, and they wanted a soft landing for the real estate market. So what they decided to do was some incremental raises ahead of the economy to slow it down. I think that's always dangerous because I don't think they really know what they're doing. So now we have uh, an economy that I think has fully slowed and perhaps heading for a recession. And I don't think they can raise interest rates. I think at best, they're going to be able to keep them static. And I think they may have to reduce them. I think the net result will be we are going to see a dollar that drops maybe 10, 15% against the US dollar because their economy is still humming and their interest rates will be going up slightly. That's what I think. So here's what I think. Okay. It's been a long time since I studied economics in university. Okay. But yeah, me too. 
there was this phrase in economics called ceteris paribus. Yep. And it meant all th- else remaining equal, yeah. right? Which yeah. sort of meant that everything you studied in your economics class was useless. Completely useless. Right? Yeah. It, it was an esoteric right? exercise, 100%, right? because there's so many variables. It's so many moving parts, yeah. right? And, you know, one thing I know for sure, everyone who analyzes the real estate market is always sort of pretty clear on where things are going. And what trips it up is always something unexpected. Correct. Right? So I'm more worried always in a complicated world about the unexpected things rather than the sort of manipulating and policy things that sort of try to control things like interest rates. Because as soon as we uh, sort of go in one direction, as we've seen even as recently as a few months ago, there are other factors. And all of a sudden, people are adjusting and explaining why they thought they were right, but they're wrong. and, And that's the issue. It's funny because in what I do... One of the strengths that I've uh, always called on in terms of buying real estate is when people use one factor as the key to what the main thing is you should be buying. Right. I try to look at things 15 different ways. And I think it's like that in terms of analyzing the market as well. Okay. Right? So we're looking at a time where, yes, there are concerns about interest rate, but there are so many other factors affecting the housing market. Yep. Right? Like, you know. Immigration. Uh, will Canada continue to be a place where people want to come to? What's the state of uh, the global economy? Yep. What are the key geopolitical issues that are going to happen over the next little while? And uh, how are those going to play out? And uh, not that they affect Canada so directly, but people uh, psychologically sort of uh, are in a buying mode or not in a buying mode, depending on do they think things are going to be good or do they think things are going to be more complicated. We've had very little for the last decade that sort of stood in the way of people feeling uncomfortable about buying a home in Canada. Well, but that's because of interest rates, though, don't you think? I I mean, they were historically low for an extended period of time. Because of interest rates, but also because of foreign buyers coming to Canada because this was a safe haven and they wanted to get cash out of other countries. Right. Right. They they had uh, political instability all over the Middle East, all over Asia. This is a, a place where, you know, if you're in China, f- forget the sort of uh, freedoms that they have or don't have, but is there an overbuilding? Is it a false economy? Right. Who's an insider? Who's not an insider? Well, if you can get cash out, well, this is a pretty stable place, and it also opens the door to having my kids come study there. And right. there are a million factors at play in terms of what drives a market. When I look at Toronto, I don't look at it at season by season, but I look at it uh, on a global level. Uh, first of all, the other day, uh, The Economist came out with the most expensive cities in the world to live in. Right. We talk about how expensive Toronto is, but I don't think we made the top 50. No, but yet the World Bank always has us listed as like a critical bubble in terms of real estate, right? Which always makes me laugh. Right. Because... When you live in the city, you can see exactly where the values are in terms of transit and work and all the reasons why you'd want to stay in Toronto. I agree. And I think also, you know, you talk about the city, but values, people talk about things being overvalued, but then you start looking at pockets of the city where you think there's still opportunity. And then you start looking at things that are expensive, but you understand why they're expensive. All I know is that if 100,000 people a year keep moving to Toronto, And the approval process continues to be as complicated and costly as it is. And again, land values are as much a driver as interest rates in terms of what's uh, setting the value of real estate. But aren't land values predicated on what the interest rate is in terms of carrying costs and and, and actual return on investment? It so depends on the psychology of buyers and of investors, right? Let's think about it. Every time interest rates go up, right, in the past – there's inflation and real estate values increase. Correct. And every time interest rates come down, things become more affordable and real estate values increase. Right. 
right? So, and, you know, and when the economy is good, everybody says, well, you know, there's going to be an increase in value. Um, we should buy real estate. And when things are bad, everyone pulls out the quote and says, when there's blood in the streets, buy real estate. Well, of course. No, but because real estate is tangible, right? And people, I think, are still nervous about investing, let's say, in the stock market historically, right? When you have a piece of land, you always have the piece of land. You can go out. You can go step on it. You can touch it. You can roll around in it. I just think and it's a, yours. Right, I agree. Yeah. But I think in a city where there's not enough supply, yeah, you cycle in and out of who the buyers of the moment are. Oh, 100%. So there are times where investors see value, and there are times where users see an opportunity to jump in the market. So unless there's a major shock to it, you know, the way we're looking at interest rates today, people think make it a big deal that interest rates might move up 200 basis points. Right. So, you know, long-term mortgages now are still under 5%. I know, but but the relative difference, if, if you've highly leveraged yourself in order to get into a starter home, uh, you know, let's mm-hmm. look at one end of the market, right? A bump, you know, when, when interest rates are below 3% for, let's say, five years, and then all of a sudden they float up by half a percent, well, that's significant in terms of the interest component, maybe not the capital component, but if you're trying to stretch to, to get into a starter home, that's it a is, huge difference. It is significant, but then every time we look at the significance of it in a deeper way, when I listen to the smart economists from most right. of the major banks, we're an incredibly conservative society. Yeah. Right? And yeah, yeah. so as soon as Canadians or people who have relocated to Canada feel that concern, they start doing smart things. They yeah. start shortening amortization periods. They start right. putting more capital in and you know, doubling up on payments. They, they anticipate, you know. Or they rent out their basement. Uh, correct. Or, or yeah. they move uh, away from discretionary purchases and they right. concentrate more on making their mortgage payments and giving up other things. It's very different than what we saw in the States in the whole subprime crisis where right. people who really didn't have jobs on fake paperwork were buying homes and renting them out. And you heard of people who sort of, you know, were, had, you know, very low incomes owning four or five five homes because this was a thing I had to buy. I don't think there's anyone levered in that way. I think, yes, we talk about it a lot, but we talk about it a lot for many good reasons. And part of that is we're pretty conservative and we're not looking to get in trouble. And even during the worst real estate crises in Canada, the escalation in number of homes lost was quite minor. It might have been a lot of homes. And for someone who got touched by it, it was significant. For sure. But the number is quite limited. And that is essentially because... Unlike other places, particularly the states, people are personally bound to their mortgages. You're looking at it from the from the user side, but a key component in the work you do is on the investment side too, right? So when interest rates are, are changing, forget about whether they're going up or down, how does that impact your ability to raise capital to do the bigger projects that you're doing? It depends how you're capitalized. And that's the reality of our market today. It's complicated. Right. You know, over the last number, like private investors who are well capitalized, create their own cost of capital. They set a threshold. This is what a number is that I need to make a project. Right, they have, a, they have an idea right. of what the return needs to be, right. right? Other people are more sort of uh, at the mercy of raising capital or they've got different tiers of more expensive uh, borrowing, right? right? Some people borrow from a bank and then borrow from a mezzanine lender and then have equity lenders. And right. it all depends. And it's part of the whole discussion that's been going on lately. You know, in Toronto, we've had a number of projects canceled. Right. It's turned this sort of focus, I think, for buyers to 
who is my developing the property and I'm are buying. they are they and real are they real and are they capable of delivering and if prices go up you know the cost of construction goes up and they see their margin depleting are they really going to move ahead with this because i really don't care as a buyer if they're making money or not making money i want my home delivered as an end use right. purchaser right? right and then there's a whole other subclass which are the real estate agents and brokers who get in as first buyers who are buying it for investment but purposes but those people too right do you care what it costs the builder to build a building in that particular case you bought something at a price you anticipate being able to lease it out or sell it for a higher number right, right? well that all goes down the drain if someone says the project is canceled right 100% so then i think you know in times like today more so than the market softening there's a couple of things number one i think you need to be aware of who you're doing business with okay. because uh, buying from someone reputable and well capitalized it's not that hard to check Right? right. You go online, you look at past projects they've done, uh, you speak to the brokerage industry and say, who are the people behind this? Right. Are the windows falling out and, and crashing what, down right. on Bay Street? You, you, know, know, like, uh, you, you can check in with things like Terion and say, right. well, the past projects with this developer, do they have a limited number of claims or do you have a, no- a larger number of right. claims against it? Right. I think that's important. I think also, as interest rates go up, we'll see a cycling as to what's being built and who's building it. Right. Right. Like, so you think the nature of the projects are going to change as interest rates go up? We're already seeing rental taking a, a larger share of the market right. than it was. Part of that comes from condo margins being squeezed and developers saying, I can't afford this price. Right. And, and at the price of investment per square foot, the people that are buying it are saying, look, I can't lease this out and, right. and, and make a profit. Right. And then, you know, there become, you know, people who in, want to invest in rental who are well capitalized to say, I'm prepared to live with a lower return, but I'm going to have this high quality more stable asset. They design it differently for lower operating costs to help the numbers make sense, which you wouldn't necessarily concentrate on in a condo building. Right. But then we have, you know, some of the most well-capitalized pension funds in the country. Which I was going to speak right? to. And all of a sudden, those guys can't build condos right. because they are non-taxable pension funds and they can't be seen as traders because that would affect their taxability status. So they're in the apartment business, but not in the condo business. Hundreds of Canadian pension funds, or at least you know, over 100 Canadian pension funds have been investing in Canadian real estate, but they've been investing around the world because there's been limited supply as to what they can buy in Canada. I didn't realize that. Right. See, I, I thought they were behind a lot of the condos. I no. didn't appreciate right. They may be lenders in some ways, but right. they're not allowed to participate in that business. And as the door will open for them to build more rental, they see that as an asset class where they're underrepresented. So you know, I think we'll see more and more of that, and we're starting to already. Are they actually doing the development, or are they working with people Both. like you who, who are professional at getting the land at a point where they, you can build on it? Both. I think there are pension funds that are of enough size that they've got their own development groups. There are many others who work with some of the major pension fund advisors. And we're already seeing big American pension fund advisors who are looking to expand their markets, looking at the stability of Canada and coming in with partners based in Canada and doing projects here as well. I know you've transitioned. I mean, you know, for a while you were taking apartment buildings and converting them into condo units, and Mm -hmm. now you're building apartment buildings. Is that a trend that's unique to Canada? Is that happening in the U.S. now too? I think the rental business was always more stable in the United States and for a number of different reasons. Most of the rental in Canada gets built in urban areas. Right. Right. In the States, they build a lot more second-tier uh, rental, so secondary and tertiary markets. Right. And land is cheaper in those markets, right. so they build more garden-style apartments. And you see that. It's more like the townhouse-looking right. projects. Right, I was going to say the, the, the gated, the gated exactly. projects and things like that. Right, so because it's more high-rise, it really 
has competed in the chorus of the major city against condo development, and condo has been so hot that it's made it hard for people to make sense of competing with it in rental. But over the last little while, as rents have escalated because supply is limited, I think there's been a better and better business case for people to build rental. And of course, legislation has changed to open the door for it over the last number of years. And we hope there's stability in that because it's an asset class that I think investors like. And I think that as people build better apartment buildings, people will realize that in some ways it's a it's a really interesting alternative to condo ownership. I agree with you. And I'd love to talk about this with you a lot more, but unfortunately we're out of time. Will you come back on the show again? Of course I will. We've got to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll hear all about Maca for your mojo on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMED Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Carolyn Tanner Cohen, is owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Great. How are you, Jamie? Doing well. You know, you and I recently recorded a health and wellness episode of The Zoomer, all about getting your mojo back. It was fun. Yeah. And I learned all about maca, and I thought it would be great for you to come on The Tonic and talk about it a little bit more. Great. So what is maca? So maca is a plant that's grown in the Andes Mountains. It's actually a root, Mm -hmm. so it's like a tuber. And it has a lot of health benefits, especially for your libido and sexual health in general. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. That's why we did. See, I thought the only thing coming out of there was the Peruvian marching powder. So <laughs> so there's more There's yeah. more than coming out of there yeah, that yeah, can be yeah. helpful for, for sure. us. And you buy it in a powder and you buy it at a health food store. Okay. And so you use it, use it, and use it. Okay. So let's find out how to use it. Let's find out what it's for. Yeah. Let's go. Okay, okay. So it's in a powder form. Yep. What does it taste like? It's very earthy. So it has almost like a barnyard taste. 
<laughs> and, and I've heard that's true. Yeah, no. Some people actually like it. I personally don't, but you really can mask it with certain flavors. Right. Like I, you can mask it with fruit, especially blueberry. Yeah, you don't want maca forward tasting food. No, you really but, don't. But if we're clever about how we do it, yeah. we can put it into our foods, get the benefits, totally. and nobody's the wiser. Yeah, and you don't need that much. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, like you need like a teaspoon a day. Or okay. up to a tablespoon, let's say. Okay. Is it yeah. expensive? It's pretty expensive. Like a ba- small bag of it could be about $20. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But there's a lot of teaspoons in your small bag. Okay. So if you eat about a teaspoon a day, it's it has a lot of health benefits and it's pretty economical. So let's talk about some of the health benefits. Okay. So it's been known to be a natural hormone replacement. Okay. Natural. Now, just remember, I'm no doctor here, yeah. but it's been known to be a natural hormone replacement and it balances women's levels of estrogen. So it's really good for peri- and postmenopausal women. Okay. Yeah, which is really important. It has known to increase the libido in both men and women. Hmm. Okay. Stimulate sexual sensation and desire. Well now. Hey now. Yes. Yes. And it's been known to decrease erectile dysfunction. Decrease. Yeah. So, okay. So, like in other words, reduce. So it's a double negative. So in yeah, other words. reduce. Okay. Yeah. And stimulate hedonistic hotspots in your brain. Well. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It is very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And also it improves mood. Do you know how it does that? Or? Yes, because it's a natural adaptogen. It's an adaptogenic root, an adaptogenic herb. So it reacts to your body. So if your body's very stressed out, it will start reacting. It's amazing we haven't heard more about this. It's amazing. And it contains flavonoids in it. Okay, so why is that good? Because it improves mood and reduces stress and anxiety. Hmm. Yeah, very okay. there cool. Can't, there can't be much more. Is there more? It's said to reduce blood pressure, to reduce blood pressure, but that's been sort of discussed a bit more. Okay. okay. And is there anybody who shouldn't be taking maca? Some people have said that if you're having thyroid issues, that maybe lessen up your dose, but I've also heard that it doesn't matter. Okay. So, I, you know, anytime there's a possible or potential counterindication, I think you have to check with a health professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that it's been known for is it is a natural antioxidant. Okay. Okay. So is, is it considered a superfood? It's considered a superfood. Absolutely. Okay, so explain yeah. a little bit, for those who don't know, very briefly, what, what is a superfood good so for? So a superfood is good for all different kinds of your body, all different kinds of issues in your body. So right. basically it's a functional ingredient, meaning it does something for you more than just it itself. Right, it's, it's nutrient rich. Yeah. Essentially it's good for you. That's it's the good bottom for you. line. Yeah. Okay. And there's lots of ways you could use it. Okay, so let's talk about maca and how we use it. Okay, so the easiest way to use maca powder in the morning, if you're sort of, you don't like to cook, and the easiest way to get it in is put it in a smoothie. Okay. Okay, so you could just make a basic smoothie with bananas, yogurt, berries, and then throw a teaspoon or two teaspoons of maca powder in your smoothie. You'll never know it's there. How much flavoring do we need to get over the maca taste? Uh, it's really hard to say. Like, I could taste it when it's just blueberries, but if you put a banana in there, you really can't taste it. Okay. Okay. So, like, if we use stuff like cocoa powder yes. or cocoa nibs, we're, we're, we're probably going to be okay? Yes. So, what I do personally is I like to mask it with cacao powder or natural cocoa powder. Right. So, how I use it, because I also don't really like to use smoothies in the winter because I like warm drinks in the winter, Yeah. is I'll make something called a maca cacao 
latte. All right, let's hear it. Okay. So basically what it is, is you take cacao powder, which is a natural state of cocoa powder. You could buy it also in a health food store full of magnesium. It's it's a raw product. It's an unprocessed product. Exactly. Right? Yes. And it has a lot. It's also a functional food. We could get into cacao powder another time, but yep. you take a little bit of, te- bit of teaspoon of cacao powder and about a teaspoon of maca powder, mm-hmm. mix that with about four tablespoons or so, a couple ounces of boiling water. Okay. Okay. This is a single serving you're talking single about. Single serving. Just my latte in the morning. Does it need a sweetener or? I personally don't, but yes, you may. Okay. Okay. So you can sweeten up with something like honey or maple syrup, which is also really good for you. Yeah. And then I pour about a cup of steamed milk or almond milk or plant milk, any kind of milk you want on top of it. Good. And you just chug that back and it's your latte in the morning. And if you're a coffee drinker, mm-hmm. you p- could put a shot of espresso in there. That's a good idea. Yeah. We just got a new, very fancy schmancy automatic espresso maker. Perfect. So maybe this is an opportunity to get my Mac in. So then you don't even need the cacao powder. Okay. So put the espresso, a teaspoon of maca, and then your milk. Okay. Whatever kind of milk you use. You know, before we get into another recipe, maca, it's not like taking like a shot or a pill, right? No. Like like it's not going to happen immediately. Like you don't take a spoonful of maca and then you're good to go. It's it's more like you're you're, you're taking it regularly and it's going to improve your sexual function sort of as we go along as opposed to in the moment. Yeah. I mean, look, it balances your hormones. Right. Okay. And it balances your mood. Right. So if you're feeling good... You're going to be more in the mood, right? And it also does help with you know no, I understand, sexual but issues. it's it's not like it's not Spanish fly. It's not no, like no, it, no. it's not like you're going to or you know I'm not going to get into the more serious drugs, but like yeah. it, the point is you don't take it like right before you're about to no have a relationship. The, no, as it were. <laughs> it's not the little blue pill, right? Okay, no, it is not. Okay. So no, you want to be taking it on a regular basis. We've just disappointed all our listeners. I know, I know. We're about to take shot back of Mac <laughs> and jump into the bed. Exactly. <laughs> no, it is not. That at all. Okay. Okay. So let's say we didn't want to take it in liquid form. How else have you tried to use it? So I like to not think in the morning. Just me. I like to not think during the entire day, yeah, but I'm okay. with you. Go ahead. So I make overnight oats. Yeah. Now, I love overnight yeah, oats. Yeah. So I make them at night and mm-hmm. then I put them in the fridge and I have them in the morning. Overnight oats, the basic, basic, basic recipe is oats, milk or almond milk or any type of plant milk. Yeah. And maybe like a little bit of yogurt or mashed banana mix it together and a little bit of, sorry, a little bit of chia seeds as well because that allows for it to grow and then a teaspoon or two of maca powder in there and then leave it in the fridge overnight and eat it as you wish. Right. And the nice thing, like, I mean, there's there's basic ratios that you use per person. Like, like the recipes that I use, you use about a proportion, like a half grated apple, a third of a cup of grain, usually it's oats. Uh, maybe a quarter cup of milk or maybe a little bit of yogurt thrown in there as well. But then beyond that, it's just flavoring agents like vanilla, yeah, cinnamon. Exactly. Exactly. My ratio. Yeah, if go you, ahead. Okay. I like this ratio. It's a cup of rolled oats. Per person? No, no, no. This makes four right. servings. You might as well make four servings. You might as well. Because it'll last you about four days. Right. Okay. So I use about a cup of rolled oats yep. and about two cups of some form of liquid. Right. That liquid could be a combination of milk, right. water, and yogurt. Right. Okay. So it's one to two. Right. Okay. And then I always add a tablespoon of chia seeds in there. Right. And what do the chia seeds do? The chia seeds expand. Right. They kind of grow, if you will. Yeah. They also are full of nutrients as well. We could get into that if you want. Yeah. I think it's non-soluble fiber that they Yes. Have. And so they are great for digestion. So 
a cup of rolled oats to about two cups of some form of liquid, and that could be a combination of yogurt and liquid being milk, almond milk, soy milk. Right, and the the beauty part of overnight oats is you're not cooking them. No. They're just, you know, they're there, they're in the fridge, they're usable. Their shelf life is what, about three or four days? You can can make them ahead of time? Yes, you can make them ahead of time. Actually, if you're having digestive issues, what I like to do is I, I stir them into a big tall glass of water just like a teaspoon in a tall glass of water and drink that. Let it grow for about five minutes and drink it. What are we talking about, chia? Chia seeds. Sorry, I'm just digressing a little bit. But So for the maca overnight oats, your basic recipe is a cup of oats, two cups of some form of liquid being milk or yogurt, a tablespoon of chia, and a teaspoon. Actually, I would actually go for a tablespoon of maca. And then the tablespoon, every tablespoon has three teaspoons. So that'll be a nice serving for four people. Or four servings. Four servings. Yeah. So it's okay. a little less than a teaspoon per Yeah, I mean, I'm usually good with the overnight oats. Once I make them, they're probably good for about two or three days. Yeah. Beyond that, I'm yeah. not sure how long you want to keep it in your fridge. But, but then yeah. you could give them to your family too. So if you make four servings, it's great oh, for two people yeah. for two days. Yeah, if I'm making them, maybe I want them for myself. <laughs> they can make their own overnight Yeah, but it's great. You just make them when you're cleaning up from dinner yeah. and throw them in the fridge. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Any yeah. other maca recipes? We have one more minute left. Yeah. The latte is my go-to. The smoothies I make all the time. And the other thing I like to do, if you're making granola, mm-hmm. so there's tons of granola recipes yeah. you could get out there. And while you're sprinkling your granola with the honey or whatever it might be, sprinkle it with about two tablespoons of maca powder as well. And once you bake it up, you really won't taste the maca. Right. And you can put the granola into your overnight oats mm-hmm. for a little bit of crunch, right? Yeah. Because the overnight yeah. oats tend, unless you're putting something like uh, some nuts in, Texture-wise, it can be a bit loose. Exactly. And even if you want to make a really basic granola, oats, nuts, maca powder, a little bit of honey, bake them up at 350 for about a half an hour. Sounds great. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But you'll be back next month to discuss swapping out pasta and swapping in vegetables, right? Yeah, spiralizing. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about the natural treatment of menopause on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. 
She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about something that I know something about, but of course I don't live, and that is menopause. Yes. So let's just sort of ease into this. What is menopause or perimenopause? What is that? So both refer to the change of hormones in a woman's cycle. Perimenopause is the time that the hormone levels are really dropping in her body. And normally that's actually when most women experience a lot of the symptoms that are associated with menopause. Menopause is when a woman does not have her period at all anymore. And it's defined of the complete cessation of period for one full year. And generally, this happens to women somewhere around the age of 52 or 54 in Western cultures. Huh. Uh, so it's different for different cultures? That's interesting. It, it can be, yeah. And what's really fascinating is we will get, touch on the symptoms, but in different cultures, like in Asian cultures, if the woman is living in Asia, the symptoms reported are drastically less than reported here in North America. Huh. That's interesting. So what are those symptoms? Main symptom that's complained about is hot flashes, which we hear advertised. That's, you know, a lot of people know hot flashes associated with menopause. Other symptoms include weight gain, changes in mood, especially anxiety and depression, changes in sleep, and loss of libido. And do researchers understand why the symptoms are so much more pronounced in North America than in Asia? Some of the data so far suggests that it could be linked to diet. Uh, What's really interesting is historically Asian populations living in Asia have had a lot less dairy. Specifically, I'm talking about the Chinese, Japanese, Korean populations. Whereas in North America, there is a lot more dairy consumption. And in lieu of the dairy in these Asian populations, they're taking a lot more soy which is an isoflavone, which mimics estrogen. Right. And the preliminary research is thought to, because not just the addition of soy in the diet, but also the removal of dairy may be why there's less symptoms experienced. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're all about natural solutions to problems. So I am. So you are. So let's talk about what solutions there are to ease some of the difficulties that go along with perimenopause and menopause. So because we're speaking about diet, diet definitely plays a huge factor. For some women, using soy-based substances, even having um, a glass or two of soy milk a day can be beneficial in reducing hot flashes. I've had some women completely get rid of hot flashes by just introducing half a cup of soy a day. Wow. Now, there's a lot of negative press around soy, and um, women that have history of breast cancer or strong uh, family history of breast cancer may need to be careful with soy, but soy isn't all evil, and if you do choose to consume soy, you do want to make sure that it's non-GMO and organic. Okay, and can it be tofu or is are you? Can yeah, any soy product. I say soy milk because it's easy to. Some people just put it in their coffee. They put it in their shakes. They use it in hot chocolate. But absolutely, tofu can be added into the diet as and, well. And edamame as well. Yes, edamame for sure as yeah. well. Excellent. What about treating mood changes? What would you recommend there? So we've spoken about this in the previous podcast before, and a lot of the stuff we talked about there I'd apply here as well in terms of making sure that you're maintaining your exercise level, you're getting out, exposing yourself to sunlight. You know, if conventional 
pharmaceutical agents, antidepressant medication, antidepressant medications necessary, you know, weigh all those options. But I have used St. John's wort, the herbal supplement, with a lot of menopausal women, and there is quite a good amount of research showing how effective St. John's wort is in managing mood. The nice thing about using St. John's wort, too, is it's not just helping to alleviate depression, but it's also known as a nervine tonic, which means it relaxes the nervous system Mm -hmm. and therefore can also aid in reducing anxiety and helping sleep at night as well, which can be, as I mentioned, another problem with menopause and changes in sleep. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we talked about adding soy into the diet. Is there anything else you would recommend that might make uh, symptoms better or maybe even worse? For a lot of women, they notice that alcohol... I was going to say wine, right? Yeah, specifically red wine can bring on a hot flash. Is it the tannins in the wine? They think so, yeah. Okay. So staying away from red wine, which a lot of women don't want to hear. If it's not, you know, it's playing around with things. Sometimes it's it's good to take something out for two or three weeks. Let's say like no red wine for two to three weeks. Right. And then have a glass or two and see what happens. Some women are astounded at actually how strongly that correlation is there, but they just didn't realize because they hadn't actually experimented it with it before. I, I've heard some people discuss the fact that, you know, there, even, there are some red wine varietals that aren't heavily tannined and also... Th- the uh, the phosphates i was going to say the yep. organic wines that don't have as much phosphate is another trigger uh, yep. or it helps with that trigger yep. right yep. yeah exactly yes so those are options sugar can also bring on hot flashes in a lot of women and most women do experience sugar cravings during menopause so that's also can be a tricky one to navigate in terms of avoiding sugar when they're craving sugar so much so choosing natural forms of sugar having fruit instead of gummy candies of course is better or you know again trying to avoid sugar especially refined sugar white sugar as much as possible for three weeks and then go for a bag of whatever you're craving skittles and see do you experience <laughs> that hot flash right after. I'm more of a Sours man than a Skittles man, but I understand. But you're, you're a man. That's We're true. talking about women. This is true. Yes. I, I will take a step back. <laughs> so I know you also wanted to discuss bioidentical hormones. What are they and how can they help? So bioidentical hormones, speaking of soy, they are extracted from a soy or sometimes a wild yam extract. And unlike conventional hormone replacement therapy, which was all the rage about uh, 40, 50 years ago when a woman went through menopause, it was very common for her conventional physician to prescribe her these conjugated equine estrogens, these conventional hormones to alleviate the symptoms of menopause. Then about, oh, 20 years ago or so, 30 years ago, there started becoming papers coming out showing that there was an increased risk of breast cancer and heart disease when taking these conventional hormone replacement therapy. Right. So although conventional hormone replacement therapy is still around, it's much less used than it used to be. However, some people notice that the alleviation of the symptoms of menopause is so great with the hormone therapy they choose to use it anyways despite the known uh, potential side effects right or there's women now wishing to have something called bioidentical hormone therapy which instead of the the conjugated the conventional hormones are actually made the, the primary substrate that's used to make these hormones is actually pregnant horses urine of course women aren't taking pregnant horses urine but that's kind of the base substance they're using so they're using estrogens that are based from a horse versus a bioidentical which is formed from a soy or a yam and it's identical to our body it's not a horse's estrogen because of that there's less side effects associated with these bioidentical hormones 
Hmm. So the same risk of breast cancer or heart disease doesn't seem to be as great. So it's something that I use in my toolkits. A lot of naturopathic doctors do use, some medical doctors do use. Mm -hmm. When dietary changes, using herbal therapies, using sleep hygiene isn't cutting it in terms of mitigating these uh, symptoms of menopause. Okay. So one of the symptoms with perimenopause and menopause, you said before, was weight gain. Mm-hmm. So what would you, how would you address that specifically if that were a major symptom for somebody? So the weight gain associated with menopause is due to the change in hormones, also due to the increased amount of inflammation in the body. Mm-hmm. So again, dietary changes that reduce inflammation, the same things we spoke about before, reducing alcohol consumption, reducing sugar, balancing your sugar in other ways. One of the herbs that I use for sugar balancing is known as berberine. Mm-hmm. And berberine has been shown, it's used a lot for diabetic patients or people with prediabetes because it does actually normalize the serum glucose in the body. And because of that, it can help aid in weight loss and also acts as an antioxidant. So it's a fascinating little uh, substance. And a lot of women notice that the sugar cravings are actually reduced when taking berberine. Usually it's taken with meals. And I presume there's no contraindications. It can be taken with, with just as long as you have it with meals, it's fine? Well, anything that you take, there could be side effects or interactions, especially if someone's already taking diabetic medication or they suffer from low blood sugar, using something to lower blood sugar. You know, you'd want to definitely check in with whoever's overseeing your care. Right. There's also studies showing menopausal women having some really good benefit with intermediate fasting, which we spoke about. Right on another podcast as well. And that could be a solution. It's generally not seen as a long-term solution. Even small amounts of intermediate fasting, like making sure that you have a 12-hour window where you're not eating overnight can also help with sleep because sometimes eating before bed or getting up and having a meal can actually stimulate the body. And having a 12-hour fast can optimize hormones, as we spoke about as well. Right. Okay, we have time for one more question, and that is sort of goes to the change in bone density uh, as women go through menopause. How would you address that? One of the best therapies is continuing weight-bearing exercises, which often is overseen when talking to women about how to maintain their bone density. A lot of times we talk about, okay, make sure you have the calcium and get those calcium in. But once you hit a certain age, you know, for for a woman, it's somewhere around 25 to 30. Calcium doesn't do a lot for bone density in small amounts, but it's not as, you know, you're not building your bones, you know, up until your 50s and 60s. You're wanting to maintain your bone health. So having the weight-bearing exercise is a great way to maintain and making sure you have a diet that isn't really acidic, which can actually strip the calcium from the bone. So that's looking even at things that having too many carbonated beverages, too much sugar, too much alcohol, and some studies show too much red meat. The other option for maintaining bone density is having those isoflavones. So using soy, if that's an option for you, or flax. So things that might mimic estrogen slightly in the body can actually boost bone density as well because bone density decreases also because estrogen drops in the body. Fantastic advice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming on the show. You'll you'll come again next month, I hope. Absolutely. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24 hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. 
To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24-hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. James McFarlane is an assistant professor of psychiatry, University of Toronto, and a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. He was previously a research associate in the Department of Neurology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and continues as a consultant at the MedSleep Niagara and Toronto Area Sleep Clinics. He's also been actively involved in establishing sleep medicine standards with both the Canadian Sleep Society and the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario. Dr. McFarlane has developed innovative sleep educational programs for sleep technologists, medical students, and physicians. He also makes media appearances to enhance awareness of issues related to sleep and sleep disorders. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Thanks, Jamie. So you appeared with me recently on a panel about sleep on the Zoomer, and we both thought it would be great if you could come on the show and sort of answer some questions that people have about sleep. Some of them are myths, some of them are misconceptions, but some of them have a little bit of grain grain of truth in them, right? Sure, sure. Excellent. So let's start with at the very beginning of our lives. Babies and their sleep. Do they dream? People wonder whether babies dream. You can see babies having rapid eye movements. It's very easy because their eyelids are so thin and, and and they go immediately into dreaming sleep as soon as they pass into sleep. So it's right at the beginning. And so you see the eyes darting around and the twitching. So they definitely have that stage of sleep. The question is, are they dreaming and you can take a step back from that and say, does a fetus dream? Right. And there's actually pretty good evidence that a fetus spends at least half the time, half of the 24 hours, if not more, up to 18, in dreaming sleep. And you can say, what on earth yeah, what would they dream about? do they dream about? What, right. like, there's, that's not a, a stimulating environment, let's say. Right. We think that dreaming sleep is just a massive stimulation of the brain where brain tissue is being laid down. And, you know, we, we are born with certain, um, especially animals, instincts and behaviors that we don't have to learn. They're I, already there. So they're laying down those memories by this stimulation, which is probably sort of inherited memory. Is this sort of like a collective memory, like the Jungian concept of, of a collective it, memory as well? or I think uh, Jung was drawing on that. And there's certainly things that from past experiences and, and the, the line of our genetics that are laid down during that that, that determine 
basic instincts and behaviors before we've even experienced the world at all. Right, because what experience would a fetus or a baby really have? Right, and even a baby, it's very limited. They've got a breast or a crib right. or a diaper change, and there's not much to dream about in those three scenarios. Well, you know, we all live our lives differently, doctor. <laughs> don't, don't be presumptuous. Uh, so, so I remember as a kid growing up, you know, my mom used to say, you know, get a good night's sleep because that's when you're going to grow. Was she right or was she just making stuff up? Yeah. The old wives, and that's not your mother, by the way. No. But the old wives' tales. She's listening, by the way. Be careful. The old wives' tales are, some of them are are actually true. Right. And and one of them was the the sleep before midnight is the most important. Well, why? That doesn't make much sense, and especially these days. Right. Because not many people are in bed before midnight. So... But back in the days when we paid attention to the day, mm-hmm. because there was no alternative, Edison had not disrupted our environment. Edified yet. us, yeah. Yes. So we went, tended to follow the sun. Right. And if you follow the sun, you probably had half your sleep before midnight. And during the first half of the night, you get into a particular stage of sleep called slow-wave sleep, which is not dreaming sleep. It's the deepest stage of non-dreaming sleep where all growth hormone is released. So actually babies only grow while they're asleep. Everybody only grows while they're asleep. If sleep is disrupted enough, like kids with huge tonsils who are choking all the way through the night, they they actually may stop growing because their sleep is so disrupted that the growth hormone is no longer released. So like a colicky baby who's up crying all night would have difficulty growing. Their growth chart may not be the same angle, let's say. It may not be as steep as a baby who's sleeping soundly. Then Now, when you correct the problem or when the colic is finished, then the child will will catch up. Okay, so when you when you get older and we're not growing anymore, but our cells are still regenerating, is it the same thing? Do we need the sleep to regenerate properly? We need the sleep, and especially that particular stage, because growth hormone is good for... There's a lot of immune programming that happens during that stage of sleep. So actually most of the battle that our immune system does happens during that stage of sleep. So if we're sleep deprived, more likely to get sick. Hmm. Interestingly, if we're sick, we're more likely to want to go to sleep. Oh, it's all all interconnected. Real interaction between the immune system and the sleep-wake cycle. Okay, so another old wives' tale is that older people don't need as much sleep. Is that true? I don't believe it's true. I just think they gather their sleep in a different way. Right. I mean, my dad used to say, I don't nap during the day. Well, I remember being pulling into a corner store beside his car. He's fast asleep behind the wheel. My mom's darted in to get a a quart of milk. Right. And uh, as soon as she opens the door again, boom, he's wide awake. He hasn't hasn't napped. I'm doing air bunnies. (laughs) Um, And so because there's a lack of schedule... Uh, I mean, we all have to hopefully remain alert all day at work, and that's what the demand is. But uh, I think the uh, older people, once they retire, can gather the same number of hours of sleep in a very different way. So if you're just measuring sleep overnight, yeah, they need less overnight sleep because they probably get the rest in small packages across the day. I actually had a debate uh, with my brother-in-law and my father very recently about whether the sleep that we get through naps during the day is the same quality sleep as if we get it at night. Is it the same quality? There have been some studies, interesting studies, that say if you take the nap at a particular time of day, it's of even more value. Really? So as an example, and it's a moving target depending on what people's schedules are, but say let's between two and six, that's pretty wide. It's usually yeah. narrower than that, but most people will feel that pocket during the day when they begin to sink. 
And everybody does. Right. And if you're sleep deprived at night, that you sink deeper. hundred percent. Now, there's a study uh, many years ago out of Israel that looked at um, sleep depriving people for two days and then letting them go to bed for 10 minutes, be awake for 20, in bed for 10, awake for, you can imagine that they oh would God. get punched by the yeah. end of that. And they did that for two more days and they found that there was what they call sleep gates and forbidden zones. And the sleep gate was right between two and six in the afternoon. Then they explored napping and said that a, a nap no more than 30 minutes, 40 tops, is very valuable at that time of day and is actually more restorative than disproportionately restorative as compared to the sleep at night. So you could, if you nap 30 minutes at that time, you may be able to, to eliminate an hour of sleep at night and still feel good the rest of the time. So, so the Spaniards and their siestas are onto something. It may be that we need, we're more suited from an evolutionary point of view, to a biphasic, you know, two phases of sleep rather than the one solid huh. one. We it'll never work in North America. They, no, it's, it's just not going to. Uh, you barely get enough sleep. <laughs> you barely have time for one sleep session, let alone two. Why do we dream? I mean, my dreams are vivid, but but what's what is the brain doing? What's it about? It's about memory consolidation. It's about it's about purging, getting rid of stuff you don't need anymore in terms of memory and 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 memory function. Dreaming is probably the most fascinating physiologic phenomena that anybody can imagine. It's it's virtual yeah. reality. When you are in right. it, you are in it. it feels you, real. You you cannot differentiate that from from your real life. But it's really random stimulation, and it's it's taking experiences and things that may have happened during the day or that you've learned or that are new, and the process of associating it with something that's already there, hanging it on a familiar hook, so that you can go back and find it more easily. It's a good filing system that's that's a a theory a strong theory of what dreaming is but since it's so random i always say it's like um taking several films cutting them each into hundreds of pieces mixing them up throwing them in a room about this size and asking a uh, you know a, a filmographer okay make a movie out of that i find that a lot of you know you know i'll be talking about a subject <clears throat> And I'll, it'll pop up in a dream, but in a juxtaposed manner, right? Like, like maybe I'll have seen something like an old movie that I hadn't seen in maybe 10 years. And a scene from the movie will pop up within my own sort of existence, but in a totally different context. That's because your filmographers had a really tough time <laughs> finding, <laughs> finding the other bit. So they just put the, uh, the next bit that sort of fits, but not really. And we all feel that we jump around in very uh, insane ways during dream sleep. Okay. And... We were talking about sleep sessions. What's the longest we can go without sleep? I mean, those Israelis were talking about 24, 48 hours of, of, of testing, but can we go that long without sleep? The record was done many years ago by a young man named Randy Gardner, who was actually part of some kind of fundraiser at a radio station. Okay. And they kept him awake for 11 days. Oh, my God. Without any, and, and in fact, the, this, the crew, the uh, very famous uh, sleep researchers, including uh, Dr. Dement from uh, Stanford, arrived because it was getting so remarkable that they wanted to actually document this. Did he start hallucinating? Uh, he started to become very incoherent. And yeah, he started to... There, there was a lot of dysfunction happening. The fascinating thing and the really important thing is that he went to sleep. He slept for, I think it was about uh, 18 hours the first night, about maybe 10 the second night, and then he was back to normal. It only so, took him two days to acclimatize. So it was not, you don't have to make it all back up again, as people believe they do. As long as they get back into their normal routine and a good sleep-wake routine, they don't have to make up for all the sleep they've lost 
for the last month or even the last 11 days. They can, you can make it back up actually pretty quickly and, and start to function properly again. Amazing. Yeah, the brain is amazing. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Will you come back again and tell us more about sleep? I will because your radio station is on my way to work. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For great articles written by Emily Lipinski, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss living and dying on our own terms, doing your own thing in yoga class, and growing medicinal herbs in your own garden. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.